This week, there was a very tragic situation that took place in France. A terrorist went into a store and killed some people, and he took some people hostage. A French police officer volunteered to take the place of a young hostage in that store. He said, you take me and let her go free. And on his way into that store, to do just that, he was shot. And then he ultimately died from his injuries. And as I think about that, I find it hard to even imagine the level of courage that it took to do what he did, to voluntarily put his own life on the line in order to try to protect the life of an innocent person. Dying for another person. Dying to save the life of an innocent person is an incredibly noble act. But consider this. What about dying for a person who's not innocent but guilty? Would we willingly go up to an executioner and say, don't execute that person, execute me instead, take my life? We probably wouldn't do that, would we? We can understand dying to save an innocent person, but dying for a guilty person, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not die for innocent people. He died for guilty people. He died for the human race because we all are guilty of betraying our Creator. And over the last couple of weeks, as we've worked our way through these series of messages about shame and blame, we saw how that happened. God was amazingly gracious to our ancestors. He gave them the gift of a blame-free, shame-free world. Adam and Eve were given complete freedom to enjoy everything that God had created with just one exception. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that. Incredible freedom with just one limitation, just one boundary, just one rule. And they broke it. <laughs> I remember sharing the story of Adam and Eve with my oldest daughter, Karina, a number of years ago when she was quite little, and she was just mystified by this. And she once, once said to me, she said, Daddy, you and Mommy have a lot of rules for me. <laughs> and it's hard to remember them all. But Adam and Eve only had one rule. It should have been so easy for them. And I said, Karina, even when you know a rule... And when you know that it's right and good for you, and you know that breaking the rule is wrong and harmful, you sometimes still do it, don't you? And she said, yes, Daddy. <laughs> and I said, you see, even with just one rule, Adam and Eve faced temptation. And God gave them a rule, a boundary, a limitation that was for their own good, and it was very clear, and it was very easy to follow, but they thought they knew better than God. They wanted to be like God. God. And that's the root of our problem. We do not want boundaries even when they're for our own good. And we all betray our Creator because we want to live without any accountability to Him. 
It's an ingrained trait in every person, and it's passed on to us from Adam and Eve. They have set the pattern for humanity, and they did it when they engaged in sinful rebellion, and they ate from the tree. And at the moment that they ate that forbidden fruit, they immediately felt shame for what they had done, and then they tried to cover up their shame by pointing the finger of blame elsewhere. So Adam and Eve introduced the shame and blame game, which every generation now continues to play. They messed up big time, and they paid a significant price for what they did. But here's what's really profound, and we need to catch this. As severe as their punishment was, they did not get everything they deserved. God had told them, if you eat from the tree You'll die. Yet God did not take their lives. He spared their lives. Who then ultimately paid that price? The price of death for their sin? It was Jesus. When Jesus died upon the cross, he took upon himself the sinful condition of mankind that was set in motion by Adam and Eve, this sinful condition that every person reproduces. And we need to understand, it's vital for us to understand that we all have committed cosmic treason against our Creator. We all deserve execution. And Jesus stepped in and He took your place and He took my place. For this reason, the crucifixion of Jesus is the most profound voluntary sacrifice in history because he died not for innocent people, but for guilty people, for the guilt of all humanity. It's actually mind-boggling. And when we can grasp the breadth and depth of our betrayal of our Creator, when we can grasp what we actually deserve from God, then the cross becomes a source of wonder we can receive it as an act of undeserved love. And yet this loving act was brutal. The brutality of what Jesus endured on the cross was appalling because crucifixion probably is the most harsh form of execution ever devised by human beings. The invention of crucifixion reveals the dark side of human nature. Now the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament give us eyewitness accounts of what he experienced and it was awful. However, God wanted us to have more than those eyewitness accounts. He wanted us to be able to actually see the crucifixion through the eyes of Jesus himself. He wanted us to know what Jesus felt as he was executed for crimes that he did not commit. How, though, do you get a first-person account of an execution? I mean, the person being killed usually is not in a position to narrate as they're dying. And people who are executed don't survive, so they can't write about it later on. You can't get a first-person account of an execution through normal human means. Yet God wanted us to have this, and so he did it supernaturally. 
He did it prophetically. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, God spoke to King David of Israel and he gave him specific insights into what Jesus was going to experience on the cross. David recorded those words from God in what we know as Psalm 22. Now, David didn't understand exactly what he was writing, and neither did the ancient Jews. They thought it was a psalm about a man, any man, who who might experience some kind of horrible suffering. However, we know that Psalm 22 was fulfilled on the day that Jesus died. We know it beyond any doubt because crucifixion is accurately described in this psalm long before crucifixion even had been invented. There are specific actions described here in this psalm. They're given to us as a prophecy and then later they're recorded as history in the New Testament because those who were present on the day Jesus died said, yes, these things happened. And to to ensure that we make the connection. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out to God with the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did that not just to cry out to God, but to point us back to this psalm. Because he wants us to see the cross through his eyes and his experience. And so we're going to look the first portion of Psalm 22, and see what Jesus does on the cross to take away our shame and our blame. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so we picture Jesus there on the cross, helpless, crying out to God. And there are two really significant things to notice in what he says. First, he feels completely alienated from God, and that's never happened before, and it will never happen again, but he is separated from God. He feels forsaken. And we can't actually explain this in human terms, because when Jesus walked the earth, he was God in the flesh. So how can God be separated from God? I don't know. But he was. And for him, that results in a horrible sense of isolation. He feels cut off from his eternal connection to the Father. And he voluntarily does that. He takes the emotional agony of that alienation and he takes it for you and me. And yet, even in this moment of alienation... He continues to honor the Father. He affirms the holiness and the greatness of the Father. And he still calls him, my God. Because he believes that that personal connection still exists, even even though he can't feel it in that moment. And oh, there is such a lesson for us in that. When we go through rough experiences, we can find it so easy to complain to God. 
or maybe curse God or deny God. And Jesus never does that. God may have abandoned him, but he's still my God. You see, Jesus has a faith and trust and hope that transcends circumstances. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, well, he can do that because he's Jesus. God shouldn't expect me to have a faith like that. Well, yes, he can. He can because we can. You and I can have that same kind of faith, and we find numerous examples in the Bible to show us the way. I think of Job, a man who lost everything. His wife criticizes him. She wonders, how can you continue to believe in God and have faith in God after complete personal disaster? Job's wife even says to him, you should just curse God and die. And Job, despite the loss of everything, refuses to turn away from God. And as I read through the book of Job, I feel like his faith is summarized in this one pithy statement. He says, even if God kills me, yet will I hope in him. Job trusts God more than his circumstances. We see that same kind of faith in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three faithful Jewish men who are going to be executed simply because they believe in God and they refuse to bow down to an idol. And as King Nebuchadnezzar prepares to have them thrown into a blazing furnace, they look that king in the eye and they say, our God is able to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we will not worship your idol. Those three men trust God more than circumstances. And we can too. That's the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to embrace. That's what he demonstrates for us here as he hangs in agony on the cross. And even though the Father is silent, even though Jesus cries out and gets no response, the Father's still on his throne. So even when you and I experience moments of incredible despair and pain, we can follow this example that Jesus gives us and we can affirm that God is in control even when the circumstances of the moment make zero sense to us. So Jesus honors the Father. He highlights the value of faithfulness. He mentions here the faithfulness of those who've gone before. And he recalls that many of those men and women were rescued from their distress. Many of them were. Job was rescued. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued. So many others were rescued. Not Jesus. Jesus is not going to be rescued from the cross. He has to stay there even though he doesn't deserve any of it. And he highlights that in this next section, verse 6. Jesus says, But I'm a worm and not a man, 
scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. What an incredible statement of faith. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there's no one to help. And here we begin to see the incredible shame, the undeserved shame that is heaped on Jesus. And his situation is so personally degrading that he says he feels like a worm and not like a person. He feels like a worm because a man being crucified is subjected to total humiliation. He is stripped virtually naked. He's nailed to a cross. He's helpless. His body and his suffering are on display for everyone. To make matters worse, the crucifixion site in Jerusalem is next to a busy road. So people are continually passing by as they go about their business. And some stay to watch. And everyone shouts out insults and verbal abuse. To get a picture of what this is like, let's imagine that we executed people today by hanging, hanging them on a cross out on Coburg Road. And we encouraged a crowd to gather and to jeer and to mock. We encouraged pedestrians as they walk by to hurl insults. We encouraged people driving by in their car to honk their horns and yell out their windows. It would be brutal, ugly, horrible, humiliating. It would be an awful spectacle. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus endured. And the insults that he received were brutal. We find one of them recorded right here in verse 80. Trust in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Guess what? Chapter 27 of the book of Matthew records that on the day Jesus died, something almost exactly like this was said. It's not a coincidence. It's fulfilled prophecy. Telling us that this is an accurate description of what Jesus saw and experienced on the cross. Insults, humiliation, shame, and unending pain. And there's no justifiable reasons for God the Father to abandon His own Son in such a way. As Jesus says here in verses 9 and 10, He's trusted the Father completely throughout His life. He's always been a faithful and obedient Son. There's no legitimate grounds for Jesus to be on that cross. How could a loving father do this? How could a just God do this? There's only one answer, and it's called love. Redemptive love. The God who created us wanted to redeem us. He wanted to bring us back to Him. And despite our betrayal, despite our rebellion, God Himself paid the price so that we could be forgiven. On the cross, Jesus takes our blame. He takes our shame. He experiences the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve. 
And then in the next part of this psalm, we get a picture of what Jesus sees as he looks down from the cross on the people around him, and it is not a pretty picture. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus looks down and sees people acting like beasts. Human beings that he helped to create act like a pack of ravenous animals in their zeal to destroy him. And he describes them as bulls, as roaring lions, and as dogs. Now the choice of that word dog is powerful because the Jewish people didn't use that word the way we tend to. We think of dogs as sweet little pets. Dogs have been described as man's best friend. That wasn't the case in ancient Israel. Dogs were pesky, they were annoying, they traveled in wild packs carrying disease and scavenging for food, and they even would eat the corpse of a dead person if there was no other food available. So the ancient Jews took that word dogs and they used it as a metaphor for people they didn't like. And they particularly did not like the Romans. And so they loved to call the Romans dogs. And who is surrounding Jesus as he hangs on the cross? Roman soldiers, dogs, in the view of the Jews. It's another way in which we see this prophecy come true. And we know from the New Testament eyewitness accounts that the soldiers executing Jesus behave exactly as they've been described here. They cast lots to divide his garments between them. Imagine the indignity of hanging there helpless, slowly dying on a cross, nearly naked, and watching as people divide up your clothes. They don't even have the decency to wait until you're dead to divvy up your stuff. It's insulting. It's shameful. And that's exactly the point. The whole point of crucifixion was to inflict the maximum amount of shame and pain on the individual. And the pain is intense. For more than five hours, Jesus hangs there, bleeding, sweating, fighting for breath. He's suspended by the nails that are driven through his hands and his feet so his shoulders separate from their sockets. Is it any wonder that his mouth is so dry? His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. Is it any wonder that he says, all my bones are out of joint? It's exactly what he experiences, and yet he takes it. And we never can forget that he has the ability to remove himself from that cross at any moment, but he stays there. 
He takes the punishment. He takes it for you and he takes it for me. And he endures it because it's part of the Father's plan. As he says here in verse 15, God is the one bringing about his death. This is part of the Father's purpose. And so Jesus, the Son of God, has volunteered to die in this way at the express request of his Father. He willingly takes the shame, the blame, and the pain for each of us so that we can be restored to a relationship with God. Isaiah the prophet was another man who was given a peek into the future by God. And he wrote these prophetic words about Jesus. They're recorded in Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus dies for guilty people, not innocent people. And because he dies, we can be made whole. Because of Jesus, our loving God sees us as if we are innocent. All it takes is for us to put our trust and our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. And when we do, we put our trust in Jesus, that's when we get a fresh start. I I don't know how anyone can read the story of the cross and not understand it as a painful story. Obviously, it was incredibly painful for Jesus. It, It ought to be painful for us to read about this. It ought to be painful for us to realize what the Son of God went through to sacrifice himself for us. And I don't know any way to respond to this except with gratefulness and thankfulness and devotion. And the cross is so central to who we are. And that's why we remind ourselves of this sacrifice every week in worship through taking communion together. And even though we remember the cross weekly, I believe it's important to remember the cross in a special way during the week of Easter. Because it is so foundational to what it means to be men and women of faith. And so as we begin Easter week today, I think we all should be intentional about doing something different between now and next Sunday to let God know how much we appreciate what he's done for us. And we should be intentional about deepening our connection with God because of the gift of the cross. So I think we should spend more time in prayer this week. We should read the Bible a bit more. I think it would be good for each of us to give up something. Something that we enjoy. The Bible calls it fasting. And we sacrifice that something we enjoy as just a small token of what Jesus has sacrificed for us. And so maybe there's a favorite food that you really enjoy. Why don't you just give that up for the week? And instead of eating that, take that time to pray. For some of you, it might be really good to fast from social media for the week. 
Why not take a week away from Facebook and instead devote that time to prayer and draw near to God? Here's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to fast for the week from digital news. On an almost daily basis, I read through a number of different uh, online websites and blogs from the political right and the political left because I want to stay informed. And I have to tell you that when I read those things, they almost, almost always make me either anxious or angry or both. Because that's the tone of our politics these days. I'm not going to subject myself to that this week. And instead, every morning, I'm going to read Psalm 22. And I'm going to meditate upon this psalm. And I'm going to pray over this psalm. And I'm going to say, God, just remind me of what you did for me through Jesus on the cross. Remind me of the power of this because I deserve to be there. I deserve to be executed. And you sent him in my place. And God, I never want to take this for granted. I want to be so incredibly thankful for who you are and what you have done. And so I'm going to thank God for his forgiveness as I meditate upon the meaning of the cross. And then I'm going to pray for people I know who are far from God. Because there's people in my life, and I know there's people in your life, who don't yet realize that Jesus died for them as well. And I'm going to ask God to show me how I can extend His love to them and hopefully draw them within the arms of our loving God. That's what I'm going to do this week. What are you going to do? I encourage you to do something that helps you develop a new appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus. This sacrifice that takes away our shame and our blame. And this is so important because of the meaning of the cross, but it's also important for this reason. When we truly understand the price Jesus paid, then the victory of Easter becomes so much more meaningful. And Easter then is not just a holiday, it is a holy day. It is a day of great celebration because we understand that because of the resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, he conquered death, and he is the living God. And so let's this week grasp the meaning of the cross so that next Sunday when we gather, we can celebrate.